0: You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. All right, let me begin this morning in Luke chapter three. We'll, we'll be in seven, uh, but I wanna start reading one passage and praying for us from chapter three. Uh, Chapter 3 is uh, in Luke where John the Baptist's ministry is profiled. I'll start with verse 3 speaking about John the Baptist. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Not a typical message opener wouldn't go well in our day. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the point in the service, Lord, where we are still, we are not singing to you, we're not praying to you, we're not repeating statements of doctrine and theology that you've given us in your word, but God, we're hearing from you, Lord, as you do the talking in the next few moments. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts of any hardness that may prevent us from responding to your word. God, open our minds that we could receive truth that we otherwise otherwise may wrestle with, reject. God, I pray for those who are hurting in this room right now. God, for those whose hearts are downcast, God, for those who are lonely, Father, for those who are waiting for prayers that remain unanswered, show yourself true and faithful to us as you certainly are this morning. God, we commit our time to you in Jesus Christ, amen. All right, let's look at Luke chapter 7. Keep John's statements in the back of your mind as we go to Luke chapter 7. Picking up with verse 18 after, if you were here last week, we saw uh, the healing of the Roman centurion's servant and the resuscitation, uh, the raising back from the dead of the widow's son. We'll start with verse 18. And 18 through 35 is really guided by three specific questions three specific questions let's look at verse 18 John's disciples told him about all these things the centurion the widow the servant, the son calling two of them, John the Baptist is in prison at this point for calling the powerful to account for their actions the king Herod now John's curious as he sits in a dank Roman prison. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? That's question number one. It's a question for Jesus. It's a question for Jesus. A question to Jesus. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, I want to pause here for a minute because occasionally as you're studying a passage like this, reading a New Testament commentaries and others who've studied it, you will find some commentators who, who will say something along these lines. Well, this, this question about Jesus' identity and is he really the long-awaited Messiah or is there another one that's going to come? Wasn't really from John the Baptist. It didn't, it didn't proceed from the heart and the mind of John, of this great oak who had prepared the way, who had said, Hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come out here? Was it John, wasn't from John the Baptist, the man who preached sermons of repentance and forgiveness. It was more for his disciples. But I think that stretches the biblical text further than we can. It's very clear here that the question comes from John. And as Jesus answers the questions, he addresses it to be sent back to John. R.C. Sproul, dealing with this section, says this, Is it impossible for a prophet of God to go through the dark night of the soul? There with that phrase, the dark night of the soul, R.C. Sproul is reaching back to Saint John of the Cross in the 16th century, a Spanish Catholic priest and a Carmelite friar who was also a Christian mystic and wrote a poem. Poem, wrote a poem called "The Dark Night." Y'all know I struggle with accent, so he wrote a poem entitled "The Dark Night of the Soul." Is it impossible for a prophet of God to go through the dark night of the soul, a time of doubt? Not if we consider the prophets of the Old Testament like Jeremiah, who was clearly, clearly ready to turn in his prophet's card. He'd had enough of the derision heaped on him by the people when he said to the Lord, your word has become a reproach to me. I will speak no more in your name. It's Jeremiah twenty. Elijah cried out, I alone am the only prophet left, 1 Kings 19. Or Jonah, who boarded a ship to escape the word of prophecy God had given him. We could go on for a long period of time. You and I, regardless of our status, of whether we're in Christ or not yet in Christ, whether we've been in Christ, wrapped up, redeemed by God, set on a solid foundation for years and years, studying the Scriptures, praying, placing our trust actively in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to align our lives with Him. All of us are prone to a moment or a season or a period of doubt, of questions, of confusion about our faith, about the one in whom we've placed our faith. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't doing what John assumed he would be doing. And now John's in prison facing the death penalty which he knows is coming and he's curious. Jesus and the boys haven't busted him out and he keeps waiting. Right? When's he going to hear the little tap outside his window there? And all of a sudden the wall busts down and out he goes with a band of spiritual zealots who are going to overthrow the Romans. John the Baptist is confused about how Jesus is working and about what he's doing. Tell me if you've been a believer for any time that you have never been confused about how Jesus is working, why he's working the way that he is in your life. And we can go from moments of tremendous faith, to moments of great uncertainty. Jesus, or John the Baptist, has gone from preaching, hey, who told you, who warned you to come out here to avoid the coming wrath? And John says, the ax is already at the tree. And then nothing's happening in John's mind. Nothing like he thought would happen. Human beings are, uh, are fickle. We can be swayed left and right. We can move from certainty To uncertainty very, very quickly. And John's wondering, why am I still in prison? Where's the judgment on the unrighteous? And some of you, and I know this because I've spoken with you, wonder looking around even at our own nation, where is the judgment of God on the unrighteous? Where is it? We can go from one moment to the next Anytime and in any way. This week our twins started kindergarten. They're very, very young. In fact, they started kindergarten and then the next day they turned five. So we'll probably send them through two cycles so they'll be a little bit older. We have them in separate classes. Um, The first night they came home after kindergarten and God bless you teachers. Mm, mm, mm. Um, mm, No, sir. But they came home the first day filled with energy just talking and playing wild, like wild animals. All that had dissipated by the end of day two. And they came home and Zane, the smaller of the two, just wrapped himself around me when I got home. Sharon was working that night and all he wanted me to do was hold him. So I sat in the chair and held him for the longest time. And he was very sweet, very cuddly, made dinner for them, got them in their PJs. We played a while, we read some. And then Zane said, where's mommy? And I said, she's at work, she'll be home soon. And he said, you're not as good as mommy. I want mommy, you are a poo-poo head. So I went in an instant from hero to poo-poo head. Which really, for those of you who've had kids, is the journey of parenting. Parenting. Ages 1 through 10, you are a hero. Ages 11 or 12 through 18, you are a poo-poo head. But I thought about that and how human nature is. John the Baptist was a human being called by God, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. We read about him in the New Testament, and yet he still stands on the Old Testament side of the new covenant that Jesus creates with his death burial, and resurrection. He's curious. Here's what's interesting, though. They ask him this question. In verse 20, are you the one who succumbed, or should we expect someone else? Verse 21 tells us, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases. In other words, Jesus gets the question, but he just keeps doing what he's doing. He's not swayed or or sidetracked by their questions right then. It's as if Jesus said, look, I'm going to get around to your questions, but I'm in the middle of something here. You ever wanted to tell someone that? I will get back to you, but I will not stop everything circling in my world in the next 10 seconds and answer your question. This is where Jesus was. He just keeps doing what he's doing, but look what he does. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers. And you can see them saying, oh, we weren't asking so much for us. You got a guy in front of you who's just healing people. He's transforming people. He's casting out evil spirits. And then he turns to the question that you ask him, are you really that big a deal? Was there somebody else coming? Like, bro, we were asking for somebody else. It was the guy that was eating all the weird stuff and dressed strange. He sent us to ask. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Jesus is, he's so gracious. He's so gracious. That's why it's so tragic when we sin and we fall down and we mess up. And maybe even we, we are awakened by the, the goodness of the Holy Spirit into the fact that, that we're engaging in a pattern of sin. And instead of coming to Jesus immediately and confessing it and asking for forgiveness, we run. We leave our small group, we leave our adult Bible study class, we stop coming to church, we stop reading our Bible. It's a great indicator that we don't really know Jesus. We don't know who he is. We don't know his character. We don't know his heart. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. There's kind of an amping up here of the physical ministry of Jesus. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And now listen to this, the, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, which they've heard and seen, is not the physical healings, but the preaching of the gospel. And the good news, Gileon, the same word for gospel, is proclaimed to the poor. The good news, the gospel is preached to the poor. And Jesus sees that as as the, uh, the pinnacle, the Everest of his ministry that defined the fact that the Messiah had now come. Why is that so significant? It's so significant because the poor have no delusion of being able to respond out of their own worth or out of their own means or out of their own resources. And Jesus saying, is the one who's come to save here? Yes. Because this message of salvation this redemptive message is being preached to the poor it's being preached to those who can't save themselves as evidence of the one who has come to do it on their behalf our real understanding of god and of the gospel of jesus christ begins the day that we understand in the depths of our souls That we are tragically, eternally broken, sinful, and rebellious toward God. And that we have nothing to offer God toward our redemption but our sin. We are wholly dependent upon His gracious disposition toward us in Jesus Christ. And we fall down at His feet. The gospel is being preached to the poor. And remember the confusion? Remember uh, the religious elites that came to Jesus on behalf of Cornelius? And they said, hey Jesus, come back. We, We need you to come back and see Cornelius and heal his servant because he deserves it. And Jesus said, healing his servant is not near as much of the sign that I am the one to come as the fact that I'm preaching the good news. Of God to the poor. To those who know they don't deserve it. To those who know they have no bargaining chips. And in a sense here Jesus gives an explanation. An explanation of his earthly ministry. But look at verse 23. Verse 23 is incredibly interesting. Right on the heels of this Jesus says. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. On account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The message of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. You don't have to try and offend. Sometimes I hear preachers who have great pride in saying it's their job to offend everybody every Sunday. That's not, but they're preaching to their own choirs and to their own glory. It is the gospel that offends. And where the gospel offends, the gospel offends. And it won't offend everyone every Sunday. But where it's being preached, it will indeed regularly offend all of us at different times. And in different ways. Jesus said, bless us, anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And let me break this down where we can really grab a hold of it. Because all of us are tempted to stumble on over jesus at times let me uh make a couple of general uh, generalities that i think are, are absolutely true uh within the local church context the local church context in our nation where the church is in a a vast transition where if you can think in 30 or 40 years there'll be no one sitting in church that can remember a time before smartphones all of us will be gone not me i, I want to live to 105 and go down robbing a bank not, not really, but some exciting way, some kind of firefight. Um, but very few churches will have anyone living sitting in worship on a Sunday morning who has any living memory of a time before smartphones. Not just cell phones, not your, daddy, not your daddy's Motorola, you know, the size of a backpack. <laughs> you open that thing, pull it up with the cord, push the green lit up buttons. Not that plugged into the Cigarette lighter, which you desperately needed, so you charge it a while and unplug it and light up and call dad. I gotta, get, I gotta get back here. Um, we're in a huge historic transformation and transition in the life of the church. Huge. And the, how many of you in here are grandparents? Okay, okay, go ahead and put it down. Thank you. How many of you would say that your world vision, world view, not vision—that's <laughs> an entity. Your world view. The way that you see reality, the way that you see the world, the way that you process work and relationships and finances and values, that your worldview is drastically different than that of your grandchildren. That's almost all of your hands going back up. This has not been the case historically, because there wasn't much change from generation to generation to generation. But the amount of change and the speed of it now is unlike anything the church has ever navigated. That doesn't scare God. He's not sitting up there going, whoa, wow, I never thought it would go this far. Calling a meeting, get over here, Jesus, Holy Spirit, float in here. Um, And talking, I know that's about theology, I was joking. Um, But all that to say, we generally stumble over Jesus in different ways. Now, older generations will often stumble over the inclusivity of Jesus. The radically inclusive nature of Jesus to say, wherever you are, come to me. I will receive you exactly as you are. Exactly as you are. Come into my house, sit among my people, hear the gospel proclaimed, watch them living out the gospel. Do it regardless of your sexuality, regardless of your gender, regardless of how tattooed you are, regardless of how pierced your face is, regardless of how corn rolled your hair is, regardless of what your clothes look like. Regardless of what your shoes look like, I don't care. I died for all. And only those who don't try to clean themselves up first can come to me. And the cleaning up part is my business. As the heart changes, so does behavior and thinking and life. That trips up a lot, a lot of older generations of Christians in the U.S., the radical inclusivity of Jesus. And now we balance that by younger generations who are extremely tripped up by the radical exclusivity of Christ who says no one comes to God. There's one God, one Father of all creation and all nations, and no one comes to Him any other way but through me. No one. It's how people in Asia come to God. It's how people in Western Europe come to God. It's how Russians come to God. It's how people in the continent of Africa come to God. It's how people in Latin America and South America come to God. Everyone on the planet comes to God only through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And every other path and every other religion and every other philosophy is untrue. There aren't many paths to get you to the same place. It is me. And you will bow before me who gave my life for you as a sacrifice for your sins in repentance and forgiveness or you will spend your life and your eternity separated by your sin and your choice, not by a mean-hearted God. It's the exclusivity of Jesus that younger generations can't get their minds around. They struggle with. They struggle with Believers being held to account. And then older generations typically struggle with the inclusivity of Jesus. We all are prone to stumble on account of Jesus at times and in ways. So the first question is a question for Jesus. But look at the second question starting in verse 24. It's a question from Jesus. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now, what he's about to do is clarify the identity of John the Baptist, right? He's got this crowd that's been with him. They've been watching him heal, watching him preach, listening to him preach. And all of a sudden, the disciples that are still following John the Baptist come to see Jesus and throw out a question, and Jesus answers them. And then he turns back to his own disciples and followers and clarifies the identity of John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? You know that many of John's disciples had left him to follow Jesus, and John was thrilled with that. He knew that was what was supposed to happen. John the Baptist knew he wasn't the point. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is John 3.30 that says, he must become more and I must become less. That was John the Baptist's heart. But Jesus questions them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see when they went out to see John the Baptist? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Now, these are rhetorical questions with the obvious answer of no. You don't wander out in the desert to then stand there and just look at a reed that's swaying in the wind. Unless maybe you need meds. You don't go out to the desert to find somebody exquisitely dressed in royal clothes. That's not where they hang out. No, he says, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Because the the weed... The reed blowing in the wind and the expensive clothing are are part of the, the power and the sheer brilliance of Jesus' teaching. They have a very simple meaning, meaning concretely, we already talked about, but they have a deeper meaning when it comes to John. He's saying, you didn't make your way out in the desert to see a prophet blown around by the whims and the waves of culture. You didn't go out to find a man proclaiming truth to you Proclaiming truth to you, who is bumped here and there by human opinion. Because John the Baptist flinched for no person and no issue. No person and no issue. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you hundreds of years before John the Baptist is born. This prophetic word is written about his life and his ministry. And Jesus is saying that was about this. His words were about his words and his life. And John is so unique because he's the only one who prophesies and is prophesied about And I want, to, I want to remind you again that with John the Baptist, he didn't fear man and he didn't fear issues. He didn't back off, he didn't flinch, he didn't go with the waves of whatever people were thinking about God and his redemptive work in his time. And so I just want to encourage you that one shaky period for John while he's in jail does not negate his character. You and I are prone to a shaky moment here and there. But if we shake and 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 we shake, we shake we shake, we, we may be tossed, right? But one shaky moment in jail, one moment of confusion, of uncertainty, of doubt by John, doesn't negate his character, the person and work that God had called him to do. Now look at what Jesus says. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Pretty good statement, right? You're like, okay, John, check. Moses, not greater than John. Abraham, not greater than John. David, not greater than John. Elijah, not greater than John. You could go on and on and on. Solomon, not greater than John. But then Jesus says this, Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You're like, okay, I got to erase the check mark now by John the Baptist. Now, I'll tell you, if you're here and you're in Christ, you are part of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to inaugurate. Not fulfill yet, but it's inaugurated. It is among us as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Scripture says you, you who know Jesus In a way that John wasn't able to. John knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus as the crucified and resurrected Savior who sends his spirit into the world so that he may be with all of us at once. Wooing those still far from God. He didn't know him that way. And Jesus says that the least, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, if you have a personality prone to liking to win, when you're having a bad day, I just want you to go, at least I'm better than John the Baptist. Maybe that won't do it for you, but I'll take anything when I'm having a bad day. At least I'm better than John. Now, don't confuse yourself and your place in God's redemptive plan. I don't think any of us are going to get to heaven and shake something in John's face that we knew more than you and line up for our awards and rewards Some of us just going to get participation trophies. Jesus is reminding them of the absolute significance and faithfulness of John the Baptist, even in his moment of doubt, in the plan and the purpose of God. Look at verse 29. There's a kind of parenthesis here that that the NIV does a good job of, of pulling out. All the people, even the tax collectors... When they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Now, don't miss this. Because they had been baptized by John. What's Luke saying here? He's saying that all the people that day that were listening to Jesus, and when he says even the tax collectors, you can just think of even the worst sinners that you can think of. Whoever it is in your mind that is the farthest from God, the most disgusting, the worst sinners Even they acknowledged that God's way was right. Why? Because they had been baptized by John. Because they had already understood John's message by the sovereign goodness of God, repented of their sins, been baptized in uh, preparation for the coming of the Messiah and the receiving of the Messiah's redemptive word. They had humbled themselves already. And because they'd humbled themselves before God, they're able to acknowledge that God's way is right. Look at verse 30. Contrarily, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. That's a profound statement, church. That is a profound statement. Because even in the sovereignty and the providence of God and His electing grace, He does not override in a manipulative way the wills, the hearts, and the minds of human beings. Look at verse 30 again. The Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They refused baptism because they refused repentance. One of the greatest scholars of of Luke-Acts, of the the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, both written by Luke in the last hundred years, is a a New Testament professor named Daryl Bach. And of this verse, Bach says that by rejecting the baptism of John, they chose not to accept their need for repentance and forgiveness. They're looking out here at the masses coming out going, poor lost souls, were were that they were like us. Pharisees, exalted lay leaders in the church, experts in the law, exegetes, professor types, commentators, serious students of Scripture. It's a real warning to us that in our serious study of the Scripture, we may still miss Jesus. In our serious study of Scripture, we may gain knowledge and lose our soul. Because we don't understand that the purpose by God's ordaining spirit is that God's word would lead us to repentance, new life in Christ. I hope you'll heed the warning that we find here this morning. Finally, there's a third question, and it's a a question of Jesus. It's not for Jesus, it's not from Jesus. It's just a question of Jesus. Jesus is just thinking out loud his own question in front of people. Jesus went on to say, in verse 31, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? You can almost see him getting a a scoop of water out of the, the well bucket and drinking it, thinking, what are these people like? What can I use to illustrate these people? And this is what he's doing here. In question one, Jesus gives an explanation of his ministry. Question two, his answer clarifies the identity of John. And in question three, he gives an illustration of the perversity of the people in his generation. Verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. So you've got children gathered in the marketplace and they're wanting to play. And the children begin arguing about who's not playing and who's not playing right. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not cry. He's saying, the the, the kids are getting catty with each other. Well, we tried this and you wouldn't play. Well, then we tried this and you didn't want to play that either. He said, this is what you're like. This is what you're like. Oh, and then he really gets down and deals with us as 21st century Christians in America. Let's get it. Verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's saying, it doesn't matter what's put before you. You're not satisfied. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. John was an ascetic and you said, hey, that guy's a freak. Demon possessed. Jesus comes absolutely as a friend of sinners. Eating with them. Drinking with them. And he says you reject me for that you can't have it both ways this is a remarkable thing a remarkable thing um, it's amazing I, I remember toward the end of my first year here in fact I think this, this Sunday marks this Sunday marks my third maybe last Sunday marked my three-year anniversary here. So I remember toward the end of the first year, in one, one week, and I've shared this with some of you, in one week span, I had two 60-year-olds, a woman, mid-60s, and a man very early, like so I think he had just turned 60, came into my office in the same week to talk about the music. The first one came in to say, we, we need more hymns. Why won't we sing more hymns? Why are we doing it the way that we're doing it? Why... Can we have choir? Can we, what's going on? I really miss that. I want that. And I hope I heard and I listened and we talked about why we're doing the way we're doing it. Later in the week, that was a Monday. On Thursday, one of our other members, both these individuals are members of the church. The second one comes in and we're talking in in the middle of the conversation. He says, oh, by the way, I absolutely love our worship now. He said, I worship now on Sunday mornings. Like, I have not been able to here in years and years and years and years. And I I just, I think this is kind of how we are in the church in the U.S. Church is another commodity. It's another option. It's another thing we consume. We like this. We don't like that. We go here as long as it suits us, and then we move right along to another church that suits us better until it doesn't. And then we'll move to another. I found some pictures this week. Shared with some friends on a text stream. They were rude back this morning. I'll share more with you in an upcoming message on that. But part of the fun for me at looking through these pictures were seeing faces of you guys who were here 5 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Engaged in ministry and doing things and you're still here. Or maybe you're here again. But you're sticking it out, right? Right? This is, this is the great, and I tell you this, I'm going to tell it to you again and again and again, this is a great challenge to us in being formed in Christ that does not exist for most of the rest of the world right now. In most of the rest of the world right now, your church is your church is your church. And that's it. And when you don't like something, you have to work it out. And when you get cross with someone, you have to work it out. And when you feel like you've served your guts out, you have to go talk to someone about that and see what can be done instead of just leaving or going somewhere else. And so growth follows that kind of resilience, that kind of perseverance as God polishes off the rough parts of church members, of staff members. Gary Parker, I don't know if you're in here or not, Gary. I'm sure you are somewhere. Anyway, uh, I've been so encouraged, impressed, inspired by Gary Since the passing of his sweet wife, Gary took a few weeks off. He took a few weeks off. And then Gary came back, and when Gary came back, Gary came all the way back. Gary came back teaching, Gary came back attending, Gary came back serving in the different areas that he serves. Gary came back encouraging me, encouraging Jake, encouraging our staff, and continues to walk through his grief and the grieving process here among his church family. Can I just suggest to you, and I know, I know, we all grieve differently. We all grieve differently. But I want to suggest to you at least that I don't think it's God's plan that a tenured member of a church who loses a spouse then just leaves and goes to a different spouse because it's too hard to be there. I think God has given a community of Christ followers to come around so that in my grief I walk straight through that grief with Christ and his people. And there's healing and there's wholeness. And I said, I just suggest that to you. I want to put that picture in front of you. I do believe it's the way God has designed church to work. Is it a hurricane? (laughs) Good. Lands. What I do know to be true is that nowhere in Christian history or the rest of the world do people leave churches as consistently as we do here. They just don't do it. Their church is their church is their church. And in that, there's growth, there's formation, because we have to ask forgiveness. We have to give forgiveness. We're dependent upon mutual commitment, Mutual ministry, multiplying forgiveness, manifold grace. But out of it comes something beautiful, something far more significant than could come in any one particular life. Let's finish with verse 35 as the band begins to make their way back up here and prepares to lead us in a time of reflection and response to God's word. Mm-hmm. Jesus says you may reject John because of this and then I do the opposite thing and you reject me because of that but wisdom is proved right by your children. Wisdom is proved right by your children. Here's what Jesus is saying. That the children of divine wisdom, the children of The light of God, the love of God, the knowledge of God are those who listen to the message, the message of John, the message of Jesus in this context, and align themselves with God's purpose. They listen and they align themselves with the purpose. Some of you this morning, your struggle is in the listening. It's in hearing the truth of God and receiving it. Because it's going to cause us to stumble in places. In fact, in the the, the most abrasive parts of the word of God to you, you ought to highlight and spend some time there. Because the parts that you want to reject are speaking to you. Listen to God's word. Wrestle with it. God is gracious with his people. For some of you, it's not hearing it, it's not receiving it. You hear it, you receive it, you even attend, intend to act on it, but you fail time and time again to align your life by it. Dallas Willard was maybe the one of the greatest voices of the last few generations that saying, when you look at the teaching of the New Testament about the, the, the kingdom of God being present and coming in as people. What Jesus is saying is that as we are living out the gospel, we're bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. As we are saying yes and living obedient lives, even when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel like it. Nobody ever did anything worth anything by only doing what they felt like. And so it is as people of faith. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us As I pray, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. And when I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets and give you guys an opportunity to drop in your connection cards. I hope you take those serious. We certainly do as a staff. We love hearing from you. We love seeing and being uh, given an opportunity to respond and help you take next steps. If you give on Sunday morning as opposed to throughout the week, Online or by text, you can drop in your giving envelope as those buckets come we receive offering in an act that has distinguished the church from the very beginning, the giving of our resources in biblically faithful proportions back to God in a tangible demonstration of his lordship in our life. Let's pray. Jesus, just as you met the disciples of John where they were on that morning so long ago. God, just as where you met the people who needed healing, those who needed to have the gospel preached to them. Jesus, just as you met those who were following you as your disciples at that time, watching your ministry, listening, learning from you, observing Jesus, would you in spirit and truth meet us here this morning in a profound way. God, some of us in here are struggling to release things to you. We're struggling to confess sin that you already know and we know you know it. But we know with confession and repentance comes responsibility to align ourselves with your truth. Jesus, may your grace and love abound in this space in these next few moments. Help us to respond to you, each and every one of us, exactly as you're calling. I pray this in and through your faithful name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.